Strange Brew Podcast, Season 1, Episode 93. A frustrating week at Wrigley. Frustrating two days at Wrigley. (laughs) That northeasterly wind. It was rough. That was a rough one. After a great start with Wade Miley on Monday, the division race tightens up because, of course, because you knew it would. A day off on Thursday, Brewers and Phillies tonight, and a somewhat... Significant, I guess you would say, signing Josh Donaldson is headed to AAA Nashville, 37 years old, former MVP. We'll talk about whether that's a good move or a bad move. I kind of saw mixed reactions on Twitter when that news came down yesterday. We will also get to number three. We're a little over a week away from Packers-Bears opening weekend. We've been counting down my personal favorite top five Packer-Bear matchups in my lifetime. Number five was the far five touchdown game in 95 with the sprained ankle. Number four was the Rodgers comeback opening night 2018. We'll get to number three on my countdown. And college football is back. It was back full on last night. Week one getting underway, not week zero. The fickle era gets underway Saturday at Camp Randall. We'll talk about that too. Let's go. On the ground, a chance here. Durham to Hardy to first. It's high. Yes. The Brewers yes. win. Here comes Melvin to the 25, to the 20, Gordon 15, 10, 5, touchdown, Wisconsin, record-breaking run. Morgan, a smash up the middle, base hit the center, here comes Gomez, around third, a throw, and the Brewers win. Here's the snap, he looks, he throws, it's and intercepted, and there is your Super Bowl dagger. Booker the drive, gets inside, leads in. Knocked away and stolen by Holiday. Phoenix has to foul. And a pinnacle ball throws it down. Swinging fly ball in the right center. Broxton is there. And they're the champions. They have done it. It's been a 50-year journey. Wisconsin, we've got a room at the top of the world tonight. The Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. Yeah, college football back last night for some people. If you're not a Charter Spectrum TV subscriber, we are a Spectrum Internet household. We've been using, though, for the better part of a year, YouTube TV, which is not cheap, by the way. Well, none of it is anymore. I remember seven years ago when my wife and I cut the cord and just went to Internet and then started to use streaming services. This was in the infancy of Sling TV and Hulu Live and all that kind of stuff. We were paying about 200 plus a year or a month, a year, a month. And it just felt like we're not getting enough bang for our buck. The bill went up $5 every month for no rhyme or reason. You couldn't get in contact with anybody. There was a window there, too, before we cut the cord where if your bill went up, you could go and call and complain. They'd reduce it by 10 or $15. Even that had gone by the wayside. We cut the cord, just getting internet, and we went to Sling. And at the time, Sling was 20 bucks a month. It had like 30 channels. We were paying 40 or 50 bucks for internet and 20 bucks for Sling. And we went from legitimately between Sling and Netflix and whatever else we were using. Again, this was early in the streaming days. We went from a 200 plus a month bill to about 60 or 70. You knew, though, at the time. I remember even thinking, there's no way this is going to last. There's no way they're going to let this go on. Internet prices are going to creep up. As more and more people do this, they'll find a way to balance the ledger book. They'll make the internet more expensive, which they have. The streaming services, once they get you in, they'll do the same thing cables company, cable companies did, and they'll raise the price, which they have. And we're pretty much back to square one. We have internet from Spectrum. We have YouTube TV. 
We have Hulu, the most basic Hulu. We've got Netflix. We've got HBO for $15 a month. We steal Disney from our father-in-law. Don't report us to Disney, please. The Disney police. And we do one other thing, and we're back to about $190 a month, basically. A sling was about 20 when it started, and now YouTube TV is 70 or 80, and then with HBO on there, I think we're paying 95 a month. That's what we use. We do not use the TV side of Spectrum. Well, I saw on Twitter last night, I flipped on the Graham Mertz, the Florida at Utah game, and Graham looked like Graham. He completed some passes. He threw for 300 yards, one touchdown, one pick, didn't do enough to win the game, didn't necessarily lose the game. It was a Graham Mertz special. You could have made that in a lab, in a Graham Mertz lab. I watched that game, and then I threw on Twitter just to see what people were saying about it or to see if anybody that were Badger fans had any takes on Graham Mertz. And what I ran into was a lot of Spectrum, Charter Spectrum customers that use that for TV that were taking pictures of the screen they had when they turned on ESPN where it said, we are in a contract dispute, and what we care about is our customer, and we want to make sure that we're not passing the buck down to you. (laughs) It's just a whole paragraph of lies. And then you couldn't even watch the game. I mean, I would be losing my mind. I was so happy to be a YouTube TV subscriber in that very moment where it didn't affect me at all. And I think it's all the Disney stuff. I think it's ABC. I think it's ESPN. It's a lot of stuff if you're a Charter Spectrum subscriber. I don't know if it got rectified yet. They dropped that, though, that screen. I'm almost certain ESPN went dark five minutes before that kickoff. They know what they're doing. They know a bunch of people are tuning in to see the college football game that night. And then they hit you with that diabolical. I would, well, I don't know what I'd do. I'm gonna, I was about to talk tough. You know what I'd do? I'd call Charter Spectrum and sit on their wait line listening to adult contemporary background music, elevator music for an hour. I'd get passed around to 10 different people before they accidentally failed to transfer my call. That was always my favorite move by them. I mean, it infuriated me. But, you know, you'd talk to one guy, oh, okay, well, this isn't necessarily our department. i got to move you to here. And then move you to another department. Oh, that's not really my department. We'll move you over to here. And then somehow in the transferring of the call three times, whoops, we lost your call, and you have to start from scratch. Now, do you want to commit another hour to this and do the same song and dance again? It's a test. It's always a test. That had to be just maddening to tune in to ESPN and not have that. And then they were left with the Big Ten game last night. I was kind of watching both. What a classic Big Ten confrontation to begin the year between Nebraska and Minnesota. Three to nothing at halftime. Missed field goal, punt, punt, punt. If you went to the game cast, what every drive, how every drive ended, that was peak Big Ten football right out of the gate. Minnesota did rally for the win. I will admit, I don't know if you watched it, the touchdown catch that Minnesota had at the end with a minute left and they were inside their own 20 or just inside the Nebraska 20. Fourth down and 10, basically last gasp. The route that receiver ran and then the ability to get the toe down on his left foot while his right foot was in the air but firmly out of bounds to get that one toe tap down was a pretty incredible catch. And, of course, P.J. Fleck rowing the boat to a 13-10 win in Matt Rule's debut with Nebraska. That's what you were left with, though. If you were a college football addict and a Charter Spectrum subscriber and you couldn't get Florida-Utah, you were left with that Nebraska... Minnesota game, which is torture. Basically, they just they forced you into torture. What a scene on Twitter, though, last night with those folks trying to watch the college football game, the college football game last night, and couldn't do it. All right, we'll get back into college football. We have to talk about the debut of Fickle and the Fickle Badgers finally on the field, not just in theory, but in practice. We'll talk about the over-under on eight and a half wins. I'm going to temper enthusiasm a bit. I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade. This is primarily me talking to myself in the mirror 
Because when I put the bet down, and I finally did, it's a big bet, guys. It's big. When I finally put the bet down on eight and a half wins on the over, I actually juiced it to nine. Because it doesn't matter. Should we just do the Badger conversation now? It feels like we should just do the Badger conversation now. I have been hemming and hawing on that for so long. We talked about it on the podcast a week or two ago where I hated the juice on eight and a half. The juice was minus 165 where you would bet $1,000 hypothetically and you would get, if they hit it, you'd get 700 something back or 695 back. That was too much to risk for that reward. I was hoping we would get to a point where it would get to nine and the juice would be less because they have to get to nine anyway. If you have the over on eight and a half, they have to get to nine for it to pay. If it's at nine, you have less juice. And then if they hit it, you just push. It never went to nine. I juiced the line on an adjusted win total to nine, and I got the juice at plus 103 on nine. If they hit nine, it just is a give back your money. Now they have to win 10 for me to win, but I feel like they're going to hit nine for sure. And this is a part of why I'm tempering expectations. When I put that bet down, when I clicked accept on that bet, in my mind that money's already made because I think they are going to win 10 games. When you look at what Fickle has brought in and the different attitude and all the four- and five-star recruits and all that stuff, all the energy we've had since he got hired, when was it? In December? Every subsequent day since Fickle was hired and he put the Fickle signal out, the bat signal on Twitter and incorporated social media, everybody got juiced up for that. We had the commit about a month ago who had Bucky Badger on the scene as he all of a sudden committed to Wisconsin and not any of the other premier schools or the hats he had out on the table. All of this stuff... We're jacked up. We've talked about on the podcast a ton. This is as excited as I can remember as a Badger fan, a lot of Badger fans being. When I was a kid and they had the Alvarez revitalization and they were back in the Rose Bowl and they beat UCLA and nobody could conceive of that happening, it was probably about the same then. And in the Dane years too, I don't think I ever mentioned that. That's worth mentioning. Ron Dane, when he burst onto the seat in 96, maybe not that year or maybe not 97, but as he was becoming a Heisman candidate and as it was becoming clear that if he could stay healthy, he would set the NCAA rushing record, which he should still have, by the way, because they don't count bowl games, which makes zero sense. That's a take that I don't think is too crazy. Put Ron Dane's bowl stats into his career total yards and he'll be back to number one. Maybe going into that year, 98-99, where they kind of were a national title contender. They were top five to begin the year. They had the Heisman front runner. It looked like he was going to set a record. I would guess before that season we felt the same. It's been a while, though. And when you look at the schedule, like I, like a lot of people did, as we started to see these four- and five-star recruits coming in and the Mordecai transfer and everything Fickle was doing, then you glanced at the schedule and you saw no Penn State and you saw no Michigan. And you have Ohio State, that's probably the most difficult game on your schedule. That's at home. And the Iowa game is at home. Your two most difficult games are at home. And you don't have to deal with the Nittany Lions. And you don't have to deal with Michigan, the number two team in the country. You look at that, and with all the other positivity, you start to think, could this team be 11-1? and Could the only loss be to Ohio State? And then maybe you have a rematch with them in the Big Ten championship game? 11-1, and is that conceivable? 10-2, 11-1? It's hard not to talk yourself into it. And I obviously did talk myself into it. I do want to temper things a bit because I have listened to a lot of podcasts about the Badgers. I've read a lot of articles from a more objective point of view on the Badgers. There are going to be some growing pains, and I'm not going to touch tomorrow's line. I think the line is minus 28. They may well win 65 to nothing. Now, that would be a statement. If they came out there and they win by 40-plus with the enthusiasm and the positivity and the energy already behind them, if they come out and do that tomorrow – then there's no containing me. There's no containing Badger fans if that's the way that they make their debut on Saturday. 
There's a chance they do that. There's also a chance tomorrow ends up being 27 to 14, and there's maybe a little groan about the way things started. You've got to keep in mind, though, Fickle has a history of success. Had a history of success, a little bit at Ohio State, definitely at Cincinnati. Got Cincinnati the college football playoffs, which nobody thought was something that could happen. And challenged in the college football playoffs as well. Still, though, he is in his first year at a new program. He's not a first-year head coach, but he's in his first year at a new program. And all the four- and five-star recruits that are signed up for this year and more so next year and the year after, they're young. If they're committed this year, these are young guys. And we've seen four- and five-star recruits not be able to adapt in their first year, which is understandable in their freshman year or even sophomore year. Sometimes it takes till your junior or senior year, and sometimes it doesn't happen at all. You've got to keep that in mind. It's a numbers game. Tanner Mordecai, he's going to be the starter this year. you got Nick Evers, the four-star transfer from Oklahoma. You've got Braden Locke, who is the number two now. He's a four-star transfer. I feel bad for Miles Burkett. I really wanted to see Burkett in that bowl game for this reason. As all these transfers, especially a quarterback, started coming in, I really wish they would have given him a chance in that game to showcase himself so there was something on tape, something that Badger fans could all see outside of the rave reviews we've gotten about him in practice. you got to tip your cap to Burkett for sticking things out. He easily could transfer and go somewhere else. He has got the high school pedigree. There's a reason he was a commit to Wisconsin. We were excited about him. He could easily go somewhere else. He could go to a mid-major. He could probably go somewhere else in the Big Ten, and he would get snaps, and he would be on the field. You do have to tip your cap to him seeing all of these guys come in and the commits for 2024 and the commits for 2025 and sticking it out when he could get playing time elsewhere. Maybe he will do that eventually, and I don't think anyone would begrudge him that. I have to respect, though, that he is going to stick this out at least this year and see how he can match up against some of these guys. But Tanner Mordecai put up really good numbers at SMU. Almost 40 touchdowns two years ago, 30-plus touchdowns last year, the completion percentage, the yardage, all of the numbers are there. It is SMU, though. That is important to remember. When he is playing at SMU in whatever it is, the American Athletic Conference, he is not playing nobodies, but he's not playing the defenses like Ohio State. He's not seeing a defense that's like Iowa's or Michigan's. There are going to be growing pains. If your expectation is that Mordecai is going to come over from SMU and put up SMU numbers at Wisconsin, that probably isn't going to happen. If he's a guy who can throw for 3,000 yards and give you 25 touchdowns and 10 picks, we would take that. 25 touchdowns, 8 picks, something like that. He is making plays in the Phil Longo offense, and they're getting the ball downfield, and they've added that component. I don't think you can expect him to come in and put up the numbers he put up at SMU, given the difference in the defenses. That's another reason to temper expectations. There are going to be a few growing pains. Buffalo is a team they should win, hopefully tomorrow, fairly handily. Georgia Southern's, again, a team they should roll over, but given where they play normally, they're not bad in that spot. We all know what happened with Washington State at Camp Randall last year. You're hoping to switch that around on them at Washington State in Week 2. And then you look at those Big Ten matchups. Purdue right out of the gate on the road on a Friday, which is weird. That's the Big Ten opener. Purdue, the reigning Big Ten West champions, although Aiden O'Connell is gone. You've got Rutgers, then you've got the Iowa matchup. Not going to be easy. Ohio State at home, not going to be easy. There will be growing pains. In my mind, I've already made the money on the over and I'm spending it on something else. The reality is it probably is going to come down to the last week or the last two weeks, whether or not they get to nine or ten wins in this case. I've got the money in on it, though. Tomorrow, FS1. I believe Charter Spectrum, if you have that, I believe you have access to FS1, and you will be able to watch tomorrow's game. It's going to be a boiler in Madison, too. We've got a Labor Day heat wave coming all across the state. What are they calling for? Low to mid-90s, 2.30 kickoff. You're going to be at the peak of late afternoon sun.
Those kids are going to be pre-gaming out there. I have a message to any freshman in <laughs> Wisconsin that are listening. I didn't go to Wisconsin. I went to plenty of Wisconsin games. If you are a freshman, an incoming freshman, and partying maybe wasn't your thing in high school, and you didn't drink too much, and not saying you have to do that, whatever. If you are new to that kind of a party scene, just take it slow on Saturday. It's a marathon. It's not a sprint. It's a hot day. I understand you've got the youthful energy and all that, then you probably won't suffer from the week-long hangover afterwards. I'm just saying, don't let it get the better of you early. I've been to Madison for 11 a.m. kickoffs where you're having drinks at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. I've been to 2 o'clock kickoffs where you're having drinks at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning. It's a long haul. Just don't go overboard early. Pace yourself. Pace. 2.30 2.30 kickoff on Saturday. It will be hot. And then they have the at Washington State matchup coming up for week two. It's just exciting to see it finally. We've been talking about it and getting excited about it for so long and all of the different things that have happened at the Badger program since McIntosh took over and now Fickle. We are very much ramped up to actually see it on the field on Saturday. And you know they're going to want to make a good impression, and that probably is going to lead to some growing pains early tomorrow too. We'll see. 2.30 kickoff on FS1. All right, let's talk about the Brewers. And then we'll end on the number three in the top five countdown of Packer Bear games. Frustrating. Frustrating series for the Brew Crew. They were in command of the series in game one and set themselves up for what we talked about last week Friday where you can win the series and you'd have a five-game lead, but you could sweep the series and have a seven-game lead. And that's a lot of space with only one month left to go. And you can't sweep them. This is a math thing here. You can't sweep a team unless you win game one of the series, which they did. Wade Miley was phenomenal. Six innings of two-run ball. Only struck out one. Played to contact. Mixed his pitch selection. Mixed his location. Had the Cubs off balance all night. And the offense set the tone early. Yelly third pitch of the game goes yard. First home run of August. He was in a bit of a power drought. Mark Canna hit one to the moon. <laughs> hit one on to Sheffield Avenue or Waveland Avenue or whatever it is. And the Brewers jumped out to a 4-0 lead. They never looked back. 6-2 win, tone-setting win on Monday. You're then looking at the next matchups and thinking, boy, you got game one, and now you've got Burns, and you've got Woodruff, and you've got a legitimate chance to maybe sweep this team and put seven games of space between you and them before Labor Day weekend with one month left with 30-ish games left on each side of things. And you can't find any fault in what Burns and Woodruff did. Burns had to wiggle off the hook quite a bit. He relied on some defense. He relied on quite a few double play balls. He did what you want him to do, though. Corbin Burns went out and gave you seven innings of one-run ball on the road. Cubs offense has been the best offense in baseball since the All-Star break. They had some guys on. He was able to get out of it. He pitched his way out of it. Tremendous start. Seven innings, one-run ball. Unfortunately, there was a northeasterly win that kicked up on Tuesday that changed the dynamic. The Brewers had, I think, four ultimately, but three definitely, that would have been a home run in any other park, including Wrigley, where they were, if not for that wind. In the fifth inning, Tyrone Taylor put one that was a foot away from being out anyway, going into the wind in left field, caught at the wall. Then William Contreras in the eighth inning had a home run to the right center field gap, That was caught at the wall. That would have given them a 2-1 lead. They had a runner on there. And then in the ninth inning, Willie Adamas to dead center. One that easily would have been gone anywhere else, including Wrigley, on any other night except that night that would have tied the game in that instance at one. All taken back by the Northeasterly wind. If the Cubs had any integrity as a franchise, understanding that they didn't do anything to win the game except rely on the weather conditions, if they had any integrity, they would simply have forfeited that game. If they had any integrity as a franchise, they would have said, you know what? 
we didn't win this. The wind, the wind won it. It was unfair. You guys should have won it. Ian Happ, when he caught that Tyrone Taylor home run at the wall in left field, should have just thrown it over the wall and said that's a home run. I and mean, that's just a home run. Sadly, they did. <laughs> they decided not to do that. And they hang on for a one nothing win. Just one of those days at Wrigley. And the Northeasterly win stayed on Wednesday. The Brewers didn't have that kind of stuff happen on Wednesday. Neither team really did have home runs that were knocked down on Wednesday. Wednesday again, though, like, Tuesday, runs scored early. Cubs got two in the first. Bit of a tight strike zone on Woodruff in that first inning. They get two on Woody, and then he settles in and doesn't give up anything else. Six innings of two-run ball. He did on Wednesday what Burns basically did on Tuesday. He was an ace on the road taking on a pretty potent offense, and he had them locked up. Brewers got one in the second. It was two to one all the way until the eighth inning. Brewers rallied for some offense there. Mark Canna. I don't know what Mark Canna does if he's got some kind of magnet that attracts baseballs. The man has been hit by more pitches than anybody in Major League Baseball. And it's not like he crowds the plate. It would be one thing if he were standing on home plate. Who were who was the Cubs player? Was it Wilson Contreras? I think it was Wilson Contreras who is now in St. Louis. Wilson Contreras would literally stand on home plate. And Brewer pitchers would hit him, but everybody would. Remember that? And then a Brewer pitcher would hit him. I think one year, was it last year or the year before, he got hit something like four or five times over the course of the year by Brewer pitching. And he, by the end of it, was acting like they had some John Wick assassination on him. They had some mark on him the entire time. Dude, you're standing on the plate. I don't care who you're playing against. You are going to get hit with pitches. Pitchers are going to try to come inside. You are literally, you have your toe on home plate. This has nothing to do with the Brewers being out to get you. It has everything to do with where you're standing on the plate. It was so ridiculous that he acted like the Brewers had some vendetta against him in those games. Just dumb. But Mark Canna doesn't do that. Mark is not, I mean, he's kind of tight, but not really. Not as compared to Contreras or how many other major league hitters are where they're so tight on home plate. He's not that way. I don't know what it is about him where he just gets hit by pitches. Bases loaded with two outs in the eighth inning. They bring in Alzale, the closer, and on the second pitch, he just got him on the hip. That tied the game at two. Then in the next half inning, it got started off on a bad foot. Willie Adamas error, the only error of the series that the Brewers committed. Of course, it comes back to bite him. And you knew in that moment, having just tied the game, that's how the next half inning starts. On a play Willie makes nine times out of ten, or probably more than that, 9.8 times out of ten. You just had that feeling in your gut of an ominous moment of, oh, boy, if you get out of this without that guy scoring, then you walk the next guy. You all pie on the mound. The next guy gets walked. Error walk. Not a good start. Still, though, they get two outs and a run had not scored. And then Cody Bellinger hits a rocket up the middle that had it not hit Yoel Piamps's foot would have gone right to Willie Adamas for an easy out and the inning is over. It ricochets off of Piamps's foot, goes past the third baseline, go-ahead run scores, Cubs take a 3-2 lead. And the next half inning, you had Monasterio get on via an error, then Yelly hit into a double play, then Contreras took a walk. They put Tyrone Taylor into pinch run, and they put on a hit and run, which a lot of Brewer fans on Twitter, they begged Craig Council to put more action on, put more pressure on the defense. Well, they did, and you saw why sometimes it backfires. They sent Tyrone Taylor. Carlos Santana hits a missile right up the middle, but because Dansby Swanson from short is covering second base in case there's a throw on the attempted Tyrone Taylor steal, the ball ends up going right to him, and he's essentially standing on second base. The out could not have been easier. 
Had Tyrone Taylor not been running on that play, that goes right up the middle and you have runners at the corners with two outs. I don't know if they tie the game in that situation. Obviously, you still need another hit or something to happen there to tie the game. You would have had, though, runners at the corners with two down in the ninth inning. They put the hit and run on, and it could not have gone worse. It was just one of those games where everything the Brewers tried to do seemed to backfire on them, and the Cubs got some lucky breaks, and they got some lucky ricochets and kicks one way or the other. They took advantage. you got to give the Cubs the credit as much as I hate to do that for the win on Wednesday. I give them no credit for the win on Tuesday. My series goes, Brewers win, the wind wins, the Cubs win. 1-1-1 in a three-game series. But the Cubs are able to get themselves back in the race. You know, whatever it was after Wednesday's afternoon game wrapped up, it was something like 40 hours before that. The Brewers had a five-game lead. And then 40 hours later, it's down to a three-game lead. That win by the Cubs also tied up the season series. That is 5-5 now with one series remaining. We've talked about it on the podcast. I've discussed it on the air. You just know... These two teams are on a collision course for the final series of the year where not only will the division be on the line, the season series will be on the line as well and the tiebreaker that comes with that. You just hope the Brewers can find some way to get a four-game lead before that series begins. I would be shocked if that happens, though. It feels like it'll be a two-game lead or a one-game lead or a three-game lead where maybe the Cubs would need to sweep. I can already sense it. I can feel the 50-50 Cubs-Brewer split. I can feel 45,000 people in the stadium Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You just get that feeling of inevitability that this is on a collision course for that final year, final series of the year. And not only will the division be on the line, maybe a tiebreaker in the season series will be on the line too. Why wouldn't it be? Brewers back on the field today after a day off, as are the Cubs. Both had days off on Thursday. Interesting move by the Brewers yesterday. They signed Josh Donaldson to a minor league contract. This had Brewer fans on social media tied up in knots, and I'll admit I was in the blender too. I still don't know how I feel about it. Josh Donaldson, 37 years old, same age as Carlos Santana, not young. He is a third baseman. The Brewers still have a hole at third base. They tried Brian Anderson. Defensively, he's been good. Offensively, he has lost. That has not worked out. Andrew Monasterio, for the past month and a half, has been pretty good over there. He had that batting average over 300 or sitting 280, 290, 300. Defensively, he's been sound. He's in a slump, though. His last two weeks, he has a 590 OPS. You might be seeing some rookie fatigue. This is his first time up. Same with Terang, who, by the way, made incredible defensive plays all series long at Wrigley. Some of those plays where you just said out loud, how? I wrote a blog about this, I think, on Wednesday. Bryce Terang should win the gold glove at second base. He is the best defensive second baseman in the league. It's why you put up with him hitting 215, 220. He was better in the month of August. I think he hit 270 in the month of August. If he could just hit 240 or 250 consistently, 245, split the difference, 242. If he could do that with a little bit of power with his defense, he could have a decade-long career at second base. That's how good he is defensively. The only thing that will prevent him from winning a gold glove at second base is name recognition. Play, I don't think all the voters are going to have any idea who he is. Some will, some won't. When you're that young, I mean, look how long it took Locaine to win a gold glove. And everybody knew who Locaine was. He was winning World Series and NL or ALCS MVPs before he was winning gold gloves. People knew who he was. It still took him until, what, 2021 to win a gold glove? That's the only the only roadblock for Bryce Terang because on the field, the optics and the metrics of it, he is the best defensive second baseman in the league. Side note. Back to Andrew Monasterio. He has been solid defensively at third base. The offense is waning a bit. A part of that, like we just talked about, I think is some of these kids have been up now for an extended period for quite a bit of time. Terang and Weimer and Freelick a little less than the others. Monasterio, they haven't 
been in these kind of seasons where they're getting 400 at 450 at bats at the major league level and going through that mental grind. Maybe he's lagging a bit because of that. Because of that, it feels like you still have a hole at third base, even though I think I'd be okay with Monasterio. Ultimately, if that's all you had going forward. They signed Donaldson. He's a former MVP. He's having a, or was having a dreadful year in New York with the Yankees. When he was cut or released, he was hitting 142, 142 with 10 home runs. So he's slugging 435, and his OPS is actually just short of 700, which is incredible when you consider a 142 batting average. 142 with 10 home runs and 15 driven in. Now, it's a while, it's a long time ago. It's eight years ago. This is a former MVP. And you don't just have former MVPs sitting on the side of the road like an old recliner where you're able to pick them up for basically nothing all that often. He won the MVP in 2015 with Toronto. That year he hit 297, cranked 41 home runs, and drove in 123. That was not a one-off for him. He has had several massive years. He finished top 10 in MVP voting the year before he won it in 2015 and 2014. He finished top five in MVP voting in 2016, top 20 in 2017, and top 10 again in 2019 when he was in Atlanta. He has been moved around. Started in Oakland, went to Toronto, went to Cleveland at the trade deadline, went to Atlanta for a year, went to Minnesota for a couple of years, and spent his last two years in New York. Last year in New York wasn't too bad. You could start to see some decline, though, that last year in Minnesota in 2021. He's at the tail end of his career. He does have that history, though. He's got two, almost 300 career home runs, He's got 1,300 career hits, a career batting average of 262. Maybe you can catch lightning in a bottle here where for the next month and into the postseason, he gets a bit of rejuvenation, being in a playoff chase, being in a new venue. It didn't feel like that Yankee team had a lot of positivity behind it. Perhaps a change of scenery will help him. It sounds like he's going to get the call up. He's He was on the I.L., He is going to Nashville as of yesterday, and every report that came out when the news came out that they signed him said he will be up with the Brewers within seven days, which coincidentally would be next weekend when they're in New York when he's taking on his former team in the Yankees. Just watch him hit four home runs in that series against his former team. The other caveat with Josh Donaldson is that the rumors are, and I can't find any proof of this other than that there are rumors that he is not the best locker room guy, that he can be a bit of a jack wagon, that he can be a bit of a jerk store. Well, the jerk store called. They're running out of you. You may be their all-time bestseller. What's the difference? You're their all-time bestseller. (laughs) That's a component as well. His wife is in a coma. That's another part of this, that his reputation is not the best when it comes to locker room stuff. Although, if you do any research on that and look for reasons why... There aren't a lot of other players that have said that about him, but there are some reporters that have said that about him, and there have been some different fans that have said that about him. Maybe it's just the way he presents himself. I have no idea. It is a concern, though, because this Brewer team right now, despite the two losses in Chicago, it feels like the vibes are good. They're relatively young. There's a lot of enthusiasm there. You get worried about a 37-year-old guy with not a great reputation coming into a relatively young locker room that has a lot of enthusiasm and is trying to chase down a division title. That concerns me a bit. Part of the reason I'm not as concerned is that they did get Carlos Santana and Mark Canna at the trade deadline. Those are veteran guys. Yelly's a veteran guy too, but he's very quiet. I don't know how much he regulates things in the locker room. I don't think he does a whole lot. If it was just the guys like Weimer and Freelich and Terang and Monasterio and Contreras, who's only 24 years old, if it was just the young guys and you bring in that kind of a presence, if he, in fact, is a locker room issue, 
it's more concerning. Carlos Santana, to me, and he hasn't been a Brewer for very long, feels like a guy who's not going to put up with a lot of you-know-what. And that gives me some hope where when Donaldson gets called up, even if he is not a great locker room guy or his attitude isn't the best, he will be in check by some of the other veterans on the team that were brought in at the trade deadline. But it is a concern. It is. You don't need, uh, for lack of a better term, an asshole in the locker room for a team that seems to be having a very good time right now, is sitting in first place and trying to chase down a division title and hopefully get some wins in the playoffs as well. It's low risk, high reward. Ultimately, the locker room stuff does concern me. It sounds like he'll be up one week from today, though. That news came out yesterday. All right. So that sets up tonight. The Phillies in town. The Brewers have two series right now against teams with winning records. One of them is this weekend against Philadelphia. Big pitching matchup tonight between Zach Wheeler and Freddie Peralta. Peralta's been as good as anybody in Major League Baseball. Wheeler consistently one of the best pitchers in the National League. That starts the series tonight. The only other team right now that the Brewers play in their final 29 games with a winning record is the Cubs. Final series of the year. Now, they have the Marlins on the schedules a couple times. They're trying to chase down that second wild card. They're at 500. They do go to New York next weekend. They're a little under 500. It's not like they're playing a bunch of last place teams. Right now, though, only two teams with winning records left on the schedule. Cubs have a more difficult schedule when it comes to that kind of stuff. They start a doubleheader with Cincinnati this afternoon. We're going to be Reds fans. We've been cheering hard against the Reds for so long. It'll be weird to root for the Reds. The Brewers have way more space between themselves and the Reds, and they have the tiebreaker with Cincinnati. For that reason, you are rooting for the Reds to win every game this weekend against the Cubs. It's a doubleheader today, and the Reds need it. The Reds are still sniffing the second wild card. I'm sure they believe they can still get the division title if they can get hot in the month of September. We are rooting for the Reds every game. The two today, the one Saturday, and the one Sunday. We love a four-game sweep. We love them to win that series 3-4. to four. Hopefully the Brewers can win a series against Philly, get back to a four-ish game lead in the NL Central. But that starts tonight. Philly in Milwaukee, 7-10 first pitch. All right, let's talk quick about the Packers before we do the countdown. Not a ton. Cut down week. I don't think anything shocked me. Pat O'Donnell was probably the biggest name early that was cut. They're just going to go young. They're going to go young at a lot of positions, but especially on special teams. Danny Whalen will be the punter. He's a guy who's got a lot of upside who can crank at 70 yards once in a while. We'll see if he can find consistency. Not a surprise they cut a veteran punter. They have Malik Heath make the roster. They are going to go with six wide receivers. Heath makes the roster. He did make me laugh on Twitter. Some of these young guys making their first roster in the NFL, they're really fun, and you can sense how excited they are. Malik Heath made the team, and he had a tweet the other night that basically said, I got the new Madden, and I'm in the new Madden video game. I would imagine if you're 22 years old and you grew up on Madden and you play football, that's got to be quite a moment where you can use yourself in the Madden game. And he said that. He said, I'm in the Madden game, and I'm throwing nothing but passes to myself for the entire franchise mode. He rightfully made the team after what kind of camp he put together. Emmanuel Wilson is the third running back. We discussed him last Friday. He had the most rushing yards of any back in the preseason on any team. You still wondered how he would beat up Patrick Taylor, but he did. Good news was Patrick Taylor made the practice squad. I didn't think he'd make it through where he would get back on the practice squad, but he did. That's a win-win for the Packers. The other bit of Packer news was the Jonathan Taylor news over the week where it sounded like the Packers were in on the conversation. That's Goody, baby. That's Goody Goody Kunst. That's Goody Kunst. That's Brian Goody Kunst 101. We are in on every conversation. All the big blue checkmark people on Twitter, though, Ian Rappaport and everybody else, 
They all had that report on Wednesday. The Packers were the mystery team that was trying to engage the Colts in a trade for Jonathan Taylor. I don't know what the Colts are doing with Jonathan Taylor. The trade deadline isn't until October. They put some weird self-imposed trade deadline on Jonathan Taylor, maybe to put pressure on him. And that came and went. That's where all those stories came out from on Wednesday because that date came and went. And then they put him on the pup list, which I don't know that they can just take him off of that. I think he has to, if if it's not before week one, I think he has to sit there for four weeks. I'd have to dive into the minutia of the pup list. Not only did they not get him traded by the weird deadline that they set themselves, then they put him on the pup list, which is going to make it very hard to trade him after week one. None of what they're doing makes sense, but it is Jim Irsay, so it probably fits with the narrative. That came out, though. I don't know what that trade package would have looked like. I would imagine A.J. Dillon would have had to be a part of that trade package and some draft picks going back to Indy. What's weird is it's this running back conversation in the NFL. The Colts are saying to Jonathan Taylor that we do not value you enough to pay you because we feel we can find a different running back that can give us what you can give us for way less money. We view running backs as a dime a dozen. That seems to be the mentality for a lot of NFL teams right now. It's not like the 90s anymore when I was a kid where if you didn't have a star running back, if you didn't have Emmitt Smith, if you didn't have Thurman Thomas, shout out Steve, if you didn't have Barry Sanders, you had to have a star back in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 90s, in the early 2000s. They're so much more interchangeable now, and I get that that's frustrating for running backs because they're not seeing the paydays they used to, but what can you do? That's just the football economy right now. What's interesting is the Colts are saying to Jonathan Taylor, we don't want to pay you that amount of money because we don't value you that way. Then another team calls, well, if you don't value Jonathan Taylor that way, what if we give you a fifth-round pick? Oh, no, 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 no. We don't value him that way, but you have to value him the way that he sees his value. You have to give us a first-round pick to get Jonathan Taylor, even though we want to pay him like a fifth-round pick. There's some cognitive dissonance there going on. Again, though, Jim Irsay. It would have been intriguing. I would imagine Dylan and some draft picks going back to Indy. I did see some Packer fans on Twitter saying, well, how would you even do that? You have Aaron Jones. Why would you need Jonathan Taylor? Well, I mean, is it a bad thing to have two really good running backs? You know what I mean? I feel like if you're a coach in the NFL and you can't find a way to use two star running backs, Jonathan Taylor and Aaron Jones, then maybe you shouldn't be a coach in the NFL. You'd figure out a way. Use Jones in space, mix and match, send some guys in motion. You could use one maybe more as a wide receiver in the screen game. Whatever. Find creative ways to do it. Having a lot of really cool cars is not a bad thing. You've got to find a way to use them. I don't think there was anything tangible there or super serious. Gutekunst had a presser on Wednesday or Thursday after the cutdowns happened. He seemed to blow it off. That was a news story, though, in the middle of the week. All right, let's get to number three. Packers-Bears were not that far away from opening weekend. One week-ish away. Eight days, nine days away. We're recording this on Friday. We've been doing the countdown of my personal favorite top five Packer-Bear matchups of my lifetime. Number five was November 1995, the Favre five-touchdown game against the Bears. They were tight in the standings at the time. Favre was coming off of what looked like a broken ankle. The high ankle sprain looked like he wasn't going to play. He did play. That added the biggest chapter to that point to his toughness lore. That was number five. Number four was the It's Money. It was the Aaron Rodgers It's Money injury game opening night 2018 where the Packers rallied from being down 20 to nothing with an injured Aaron Rodgers to win that game. Number three on my list, this is, again, my list. This is one maybe where people will find some fault with the list. I remember this game so fondly. And I'm going to play you kind of a long intro to it. The year is 1994. It is Halloween night. It is also Monday night football, and it is the Packer-Bear rivalry. 
This is just during the first few years of the Holmgren Ron Wolf ascent. A lot of expectations on the Packers heading into 1994. They had made the playoffs or didn't make the playoffs, finished 9 and 7 in 92, Holmgren's first year. Second year, went 9 and 7. That was the playoff win with Sterling Sharp wide open in the back of the end zone on the Silver Dome. Building off of that, then they lost in Dallas, where a lot of mid 90s seasons came to an end. Building off of that, though, okay, 9 and 7 didn't make the playoffs. 9 and 7 made the playoffs, won a playoff game. The expectation was they were going to win the division and take another step forward. Got off to a slow start that year. They are 3-4 and four coming into this game. The Bears are 4-3 and three with Eric Kramer still as their starting quarterback like the next year, the 95 game. I just remember being 10 years old in 1994 and having this be the greatest day of all time. You In that moment, because you had trick-or-treating. In Sheboygan, trick-or-treating was always Halloween night. So you went to school on Monday. You had on all of your Halloween garb, dressed as whatever I was, Donatello or whatever I ended up being for Halloween that year. You've got all of that kind of stuff going on, and you're watching the Charlie Brown pumpkin patch movie with all your fellow fourth or fifth graders. It's a not serious day. You're looking forward to trick-or-treating, and then the Packers are on that night, and you get to watch the Packer game with your family. I was so jazzed up for this game, and the open is so good. The Monday night opener is so cheesy and so good. I'm going to play you. This is a full two minutes of it. Ray Nitschke is helping do the intro on this, and the organ... The dark organ music set to the Monday Night Football theme is just Age before the best. Beauty. Wait a second. This is Green Bay at Chicago. That's right. Black and blue division. Blood and guts on Halloween night. There's only one guy to kick off this game. Thanks for the handoff, Joe. The Crypt Keeper. But I think a scream pass would be better. Hey, team. Are you ready for some football? And they got the pumpkins. With the Monday Night Football logo carved into them. They are the monsters of the Midway. The Chicago Bears. It's just the best. They don't do these anymore. The creatures from the north. The Green Bay Packers. For years each other's throats, looking to extract that pound of flesh. He stands six foot five, the Packers' predator, a quarterback carnivore, defensive end, Reggie White. Got a little Reggie audio in here. The Bears are the oldest robber in the league. You're going to see some good football. Uh, it's, uh, it's a division game. It's a, it's a big game on both sides. So you know there's going to be a lot of head knocking and head cracking. Halloween is upon us. Your presence is required. Tonight, for ABC's Monday Night Football. It's just the best. You just don't see that kind of stuff. I guess I don't watch Monday Night Football as much as I used to, but you just don't hear that kind of stuff anymore. And then this was the slop game. It was 42 degrees. The wind was whipping. The field, while well, Soldier Field is always a mess, the field was a mud track. And guess who had a big game that night? In a muddy situation in 1994, Edgar Bennett will burn through these highlights. The Packers blow this team out. 
I just remember loving the moment, the day, the buildup, and then to see them have that kind of win against their rival. It all started Edgar Bennett with a three-yard touchdown run. Tire back. You got winners at center. I'd, I'd hammer this baby in there. Bennett hammers it in there. Yeah. Touchdown Packers. No time for Farb to complete his first pass. The first swing of the hammer. 7-0 lead Packer at that point. And then this is the play I think most people remember from this game. Brett Favre, who was kind of a mobile quarterback in that time frame, 92, 93, 94, not much after this. This is probably his best remembered outside of the county stadium run, which is later this year, isn't it? I think that's the last game this season in 94, the last game at County Stadium where he sprints in against the Falcons to seal their playoff fate to get them a wild card spot. This is probably his second most memorable run, the 36-yard scramble for a touchdown to give him a 14-0 lead. Third and a long two from the 36-yard line. And Favre on a roll. He's going to run it for a first down. And Brett Favre takes off, gets inside the 20, inside the 10, and dives in on Cunningham for the touchdown. The Bears are in trouble. What a great play by Brett Favre, who still hasn't completed a pass, and who cares? I mean, just keep it his footing on that mud track. And then it was all Edgar Bennett after that. Second touchdown of the night, one-yard touchdown run. The one-yard line after the timeout. Reggie Khan was in motion. They give it to Bennett, who's had a big night, and it's even bigger. Edgar Bennett with a touchdown, McIntyre with a block, and Edgar Bennett in his first pro start in 92 ran for 107 yards against Chicago. Since then, he's had no day that's even come close until tonight. 21 nothing Packers. Guess who for the fourth touchdown? His mutter was a mutter. Edgar Bennett on a pass from Brett Favre. Brett Favre, by the way, did not complete a pass in this game until the third quarter. That's how bad the conditions were. The Packers had zero passing yards at halftime. The Bears had 18 at halftime. That's how bad the field and the weather was. 13-yard screen pass to Edgar Bennett for a touchdown. Than all of that, which is something, he hasn't made mistakes. Second and 12, dumps this one into the arms of Edgar Bennett. And there's a guy having a huge night, Edgar Bennett. Packers up 27-0 at that point, and they would go on to win by a final of 33-6. That stabilized their year, though. That got them to 4-4. Four and four. The Bears fell to 4-4. Four and four. And eventually the Packers, I believe it is, on that last game against the Falcons at County Stadium, able to get in with another a third straight 9-7 and seven record. It was the next year where they took that big step forward. We were hoping they'd take it that year in 94. It was 95 where they won double-digit games and ran it to the NFC Championship game and then in the Super Bowl season the year after that. They were just delayed a little bit. They were delayed one year. That got them back on course, though, in 1994. And just being a 10-year-old and Halloween and Monday Night Football and staying up late and watching them win in those conditions, my third favorite Packer-Bear matchup from October 31st, 1994, 33-6 Packer win. We will get to number two on Monday, or on Tuesday, excuse me, Tuesday podcast next week, Labor Day Monday. On Tuesday, and then we'll have my number one, which should be everybody's number one, which will play some highlights from one week from today as we are heading into opening weekend. And we'll also, one week from today, be recapping the first game of the year, Chiefs and Lions in Kansas City next week, Thursday. When we come back on Tuesday, we'll be recapping where the Brewers are at, of course, as we are headed to the stretch run. We'll recap week one, Luke Fickle, Badgers and Buffalo, and we'll have number two on the Packer Bear Countdown. Have a happy, safe Labor Day weekend. We'll chat with you then.